But I think it's that time. Are you ready? No. Hello and welcome to Grumpy Old Ben's number 208 for Wednesday, January 11th, 2023. I am Darren O'Neill coming to you live from a bunker deep in the heart of middle America, just outside of Chirac, where the crime right on Mayor Lightfoot Street is getting out of control. And from America's left coast, where you can sign your body over to a corporation for a donut. I'm Ryan Bemrose. Wait, a donut? But is it a good donut? Is it frosted? Does it have sprinkles? Any more information? It, it has it has sugar. And carbs and uh, bad oils. Sure sounds like a donut. I mean, yeah, it's a donut. The donuts are Everything you need to know about its nutritional content you got from the word donut. Well, yeah. And now around here, the the biggest thing is all of these cookie companies all of a sudden popping up. And it's like, do we really need this? I mean, I remember Mrs. Fields back in the day, which were usually like in the malls. There are a bunch of freestanding crumble cookies here, and there's another one coming. I don't get the concept of people overpaying for cookies. It's novelty plus, uh, well, mostly novelty, and then yes. and then you throw in the fact that people have absolutely no willpower with when regarding their nutrition. And you can order on uh, an app. I, I I don't know what happened to all of them, but I remember uh, around here about. Five, six years ago, there was a trend where cupcake shops were opening all over the place. Like every vacant storefront in a strip mall was very briefly occupied by a bakery that specialized in specialty cupcakes. And I never quite understood it because it's a cupcake. You you take a piece of cake and you put frosting on it and you make the frosting look interesting and fancy yourself a cappuccino artist. and and you're writing your whole business model on that. And, and, and no most people can is, make them at home. Yeah. And I don't see a lot of those stores still open now. But, you know, it was probably Inslee that killed them. Yeah, well, I think the thing here is their franchise. So the, the company is making a ton of money on the franchise. And six months after the place is open and the novelties worn off, then I want to know if anybody's still doing business. It's, a, it's an oddity because the way the crumble does business. They only make, I think it's six different cookies every month and they rotate the flavor. So it's not even like I'm Jonesing. They must sell them for a lot of money to make overhead then. They Uh, only make six cookies. The first time, yeah, there's just six varieties. But there there is so many employees. My wife, the first time she went into one, took a picture because she's like, there's 18 or so employees in the place. It's like, how do you pay that many people and you're selling cookies? I don't know. I mean, there's obviously a demand, I real or imagined, uh, for for the last decade or so. Have you ever been in a Cold Stone Creamery? Oh yeah, it's the same thing. It's it's a, a decorative ice cream. It is so delicious. It's yeah, hipster ice cream. It's it's for yeah. It, I don't know it, who the hell actually pays for avocado toast or uh, you know, back when I was at. At the company, you know, every once in a while, they had a food truck come by and park outside the building that did uh, 
grilled cheese sandwiches. And that was it. That was their whole line. But they had a huge board with 25 different varieties of grilled cheese right. on there. I'm sitting here going, give me a stove, a frying pan, a bread, cheese, and butter. And I-, I will make something that is just as good as your $10 sandwich. And you could even do it with mayo on the outside. Okay, works. now you're you're starting to develop your 25 <laughs> entry. Yeah, well, you're right. Well, I remember, well, there was one of the businesses. I wonder if it still exists. I'll have to look. I don't remember the name, but on Shark Tank, we used to watch Shark Tank. I haven't seen it in a couple of years. I believe it's still around. One of the businesses that got funded, I believe, by Barbara, the old the old lady was a fast food place that was built around like all just grilled cheese. And okay, I I mean, I guess for people that are lazy and don't want to do it themselves, I don't mind cooking at home and I can make a that damn is, good grilled cheese. Literally the second easiest thing you can get out of your kitchen. The only yeah. recipe category easier than grilled cheese is going to the fridge, pulling out ingredients and stuffing them in your face. Right. Without putting them together, even with I, no, no preparation. Just yeah. Just eat ingredients. That's the only <laughs> way you can go simpler. Ryan, prep, then Ryan just grabs a piece of bread and a piece of cheese and a stick of butter and just shoves them in his mouth like same thing. Well, I'm not going to try to tell you I've never done that. <laughs> Was drinking <but> involved? <laughs> Maybe. Sometimes. I'm having a grilled cheese, could, but you, you're not grilling it. It could be right after all that wacky tobacco that I do. Oh, yeah. Because you're horrible with that, like all, all the other podcasters on the No Agenda stream. Yeah, something like that. We're not mentioning any names. But yeah, a lot of crime going on in uh, Chicago. You don't say. Down Lori Lightfoot's neighborhood, it turns out. I guess her oh. house is always surrounded by a bunch of cop what? cars. But Wait, what, what the, why does she still live in Chicago? That seems like a terrible oversight. Yeah, I wouldn't want to. I mean, I don't care if I was the mayor. I'd be like, I'm out of here. Or I'd have a nice, highly secured building, either a high rise, or I, I might want to be in a bunker deep down in the bowels of the city to try to remain safe i don't think the bowels and city i <laughs> you know the bowels good? of the city are, are literally the sewers right yeah well yeah we got that big sewer there were issues in chicago with that flooding and it gets messy oh yeah how is the uh, you know as long as weather has become a constant part of our show how is the flooding going hey, it's not too bad i mean we so far this winter have not had any snow to speak of but we have had rain, so I mean, there's that. But it hasn't been bad. This we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. This has to be global warming. This has to be climate change. Yes, except for the I, fact that people still tell the story of how bad the winter of 1967, I think, was here in Chicago or 69, where the blizzards, you know, just ran out of control. But that had to be global warming too. Our our weather here has dropped into uh, a pattern of. Uh, so what we get is, is the weather cells form out in the Pacific Ocean and the jet stream delivers them right to the coast because the jet stream comes this way from the Pacific. And so what we get is brand new storms forming in the Pacific over and over again. And so what we'll get is uh, a week of heavy rain followed by uh, the rain clears up and it gets cold and it'll be relatively dry and sometimes sunny. And very, very cold. And then uh, another system blows in and all of the trees shake like crazy and some of them fall on things. 
and then it rains like a mother for five more days and then the rain will you know and and the temperature will warm up while it's raining a little bit and then and then the rain dries up and it gets cold again and dry and maybe sunny and then and then a storm comes in and it rains for five you know uh, this is january through march every year and the local news morons are calling it global warming we can't believe it. It's crazy. Well, it's 53 like, degrees here today, which is a little warmer than it would normally be in January. I, I just feel like I, I know there's a lot of people who are willing to ascribe lots and lots and lots of things that make no sense to climate change. But it's the first time I saw it. I actually saw a news story where somebody said there was climate change because of the storm we had come through. And I'm like, how how can it be climate change if there's literally been no change? This is the climate every single year. Well, you see, the fact that it's not changing proves that the change is happening. Is that what ha- I, I did not understand? Thank you for explaining this to me. And it's warmer here than it is there right now. So for that, for uh, you know, early January is an oddity. Yeah, it's not raining right now, which means it's low 40s. You should. Well, no, it says 51 here on my uh, my AccuWeather. Seattle, anyway. No, 51 is the internal temperature in this room. Oh, well, that's perfect. You, you can just open the windows. <laughs> Get some fresh yeah. air. No, mine, mine says 44 outside and 59 inside, actually. Do not question the science. That's what Servo says, and we're going to go I, along I with don't that. question the, the thermometer on my wall. Is it an analog one or digital, though? That's the real thing. It, it is digital. It's one of the ones. It's It's fancy enough that it has a... A sensor outside that's constantly broadcasting radio waves to wow! The it's one sensor. of the, it's a wireless one. I used to have one that was wired where you just had to run the wire out the window. Yeah, those are a little jank. I I, I ran one of those and then uh, I used the same wire later after the thing broke to run uh, to my doorbell. Yeah, that's about the right gauge. Yeah, right, it's right like it's right copper gauge. wire. Did everybody else but, wake up today with their Windows machines rebooted? I did not. Well, you're, little, you're not running a current version of oh, Windows. Oh, yeah. Thing. Yesterday was Reboot Tuesday, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. They don't even ask you. You just wake up and it's like, wow, why? You know, and again, this is Microsoft asking me to reset my password again. On you my know, come Windows. to think of it, it's not even telling me I've got updates anymore. I might have just uh, passed the end of, of Windows 8. It's just like, yeah, nothing. We got nothing. We're not telling you. We don't care. But on Windows 10, they every like month or so, your password has expired. You know, reset it now. And I type the same password in and it don't Wait, care. It, it, is that actually a default in the home version? Or are you running like pro inter- or enterprise? I have pro. I don't know what the home version okay. does. But that was the only thing when I got this from um, Costco. We didn't buy this one from Dell. It's a Dell desktop. We got a good deal at Costco. Dude, and had, you got a Dell. Yeah. And it was uh, Windows 10 Home, and I'm like, "Fuck that! I need the remote desktop and a few other things." So I paid the hundred bucks to upgrade to Windows Pro. And overall, Windows 10, I can't complain about Windows 10. It's been pretty darn stable. Oh, I can, and but for, I'm not going to right now. <laughs> you're like, you could for hours and oh, hours. In fact, I have. And waking up, it's always that's how you know is the computer is. You can tell it's been off. You don't always have to re-log in. I don't know how often it prompts for the for the new password. Way too much for my taste. But then I go to my remote desktop that sits in the troll room all the time. And that had been rebooted because I don't have that automatically set to 
restart hex chat and telegram and the few things I run on that box over again. So that's how I know everything was rebooted. And now we have new windows goodness, which included, uh, looks like fixing 98 flaws in one zero day. So that away, that away, Microsoft. Yeah. You go Microsoft with the security fixes. Just stop moving my icons around. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, that's I used to use that Omega Project says use O and O shut up 10. I have to do that again because I don't think I've ever done it on on this machine. He said that will get rid of the the annoying fix. Yeah, change your oh, password. There's certainly ways of doing it. I, I And I, I know I've given this argument before on practically every show. But if Microsoft could separate the the fuck with my workflow updates from the security updates, a lot of people would be a whole lot happier. But that's not how programmers work. They work very, very, very hard on this feature that completely changes the workflow that you're used to. And they are thinking in terms of design language and and user experience and user interface. And they've got all of this going on in their head and they put a lot of work and a lot of effort. And it would sure be a shame if you just wanted your workflow to continue working the way you have without random, unnecessary changes. So it's pretty much programmer ego that says, yeah, I worked hard on this update. So you're running it whether you want to or not. Well, the security updates, as we've talked about, are important. The rest of them, not so much. Yeah, pretty much. And keep your security updates. Some of the security updates might not even be important, but it's difficult to filter those out. And that's not advice anyone should be giving. No, just unplug from the Internet. It would help your security greatly. No, just unplug from the Internet. It will help your sanity greatly. That too. Security be damned. That is a solution to pretty much everything that Ted K predicted years and years ago. And it has come true. That is. I mean, and there's a it's just so bad on so many levels. There was more stories, which I covered today on random thoughts about kids and porn and how it was. I think it was something like 10 percent of children have experienced online porn before the age of 10. And it was like a majority by the age of 12 or like 47% or something by the age of 12. And I'm still thinking, who are the parents giving these kids devices and open access to the internet at 10 and 12? Cause you're morons. I think at 10 and 12, I meant it to, well, there, there really wasn't really much of an internet, but. Well, that was also true. It was harder I to. I vaguely recall finding in my my dad's Playboy collection and swiping one of them that, you know, that one magazine got very, very sticky over the next few years. Well, and this is the argument that's used with the law that was just passed in Louisiana and others that say, well, you know, you can't walk into a brick and mortar store and buy pornography before you're 18. And I will say I did. (laughs) <laughs> i mean that at 16 i mean granted i was taller than average but you know i remember buying a playboy magazine or two when i, I was i 16. don't even i mean i i remember being checked for id for cigarettes all the time but I, but for the playboy I, they're okay. like here you go kid enjoy your I, day well playboy uh, how about newsweek how about just something on the grocery store shelves? Well, this is it. I mean, one Playboy is dead. I mean, that was a business that just, how do you screw well, that one up? It was killed by internet porn. People don't want to pay for uh, for the stylish pictures when you've got, I don't know. 
Once you take uh, OnlyFans and yes. and you account for Sturgeon's Law, filter that out. What you've got is every bit as good quality as Playboy charges a lot of money for. Yeah, back in the day, they were the ones that allegedly uh, were providing the fantasy girl. And for a while, they did. And towards the end, well, one, they went with a trans person, which, okay, <laughs> I'm not anti-trans on most levels. That one, it's like you're trying to put something into a box they shouldn't be into there. The Playboy box was fairly small. And then they decide, like, well, we need larger models. And like the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit issue, we need large models and old models. And 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 what killed both of those was not that they decided to become inclusive. That I mean, that is a turnoff for somebody like me because I don't really want politics with my porn and I'm right. a little bit hypersensitive to wokeness. These Oh, days. I mean, do we have, but, can we do this? Can we do this? This is a great idea. Mixing politics with porn. Can we have porn isn't stars? That naked news, right? Giving, but, but while not just naked news while in the act. So, Oh, oh you're right. Giving. It seems like it'd be difficult to read a teleprompter <laughs> and, or, or how about this? If you're reading a teleprompter, well, then you're really just not that much into it. Right. That may be true. <laughs> that may be true, but this there was and the, the weather today is it highs in the forty ones and lows in the sixty twos. Well, no, see it, now this would be like the the spokes model. Uh, the woman reading the news would be like, "It's fourteen degrees in the city of Chicago," and that would be more, <laughs> that would be more how it would be, it, 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 again would, if there would be if engagement. you can read news, you're not that into it. Yeah, it would be engaging. Also, and, I, I, you know, paying attention to news and paying attention to porn. Those use different types of my brain that I don't like turning on at the same time. <laughs> yes. That may for, short for circuit thing, people. There's, there's only enough blood in my circulatory system to run one brain at a time, either my news brain or my porn brain. And they're not in the same place. So that may not be the million dollar idea. I thought it was maybe not, but you're right. The women that are hot enough to go on to only fans or a site like that and make money were the ones that used to be or in playboy Pornhub, And, but now they've realized they can monetize their looks themselves. You don't need, just yeah. like you don't need a record label. You certainly don't need Playboy if you want to get naked fi- pictures of yourself out on the internet. Playboy was extremely valuable in its niche for its time period, which was publishing was difficult. Getting a, a camera spread was not common. And they put all of the pieces together and published high quality, glossy photos. For people who could not get them on the internet because there was no internet. Yes. Now you're but $20 their business webcam. Model is, their business model is an anachronism. And now you can make three clicks on, you know, I'm not going to say anything about my bookmarks, but you type in a URL and you have everything that Playboy could deliver at your fingertips, including the articles. Yeah, and if you're a hot enough female, a uh, okay, maybe not a twenty dollar webcam, but probably a hundred and fifty dollar webcam will deliver you more than good oh, yeah. enough quality. And for- so, so Playboy and uh, new you know, magazines, periodicals like that were a Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition. Sports Illustrated in general, the business model has moved on. Their business model is anachronistic. They are no longer like they they were dying already but what killed them when they went woke was not putting up inclusive chicks it was putting up ugly chicks yes which goes completely counter their business model you are now 
going to a bunch of people who do not give a crap about politics either way. They're not triggered by wokeness like I am. And they're also most of them are probably not really turned on because you happen to include a, a, an inclusive, diverse, whatever you know, person with lots of you know pronouns or they're not most of your core audience doesn't care about the politics. What they care about is the fact that you just ruined your product by putting somebody that isn't pretty. Yes. You're promoting exactly what they don't want, which, which makes it a hard sell makes people turn away. Uh-huh. You know, people that the, the people that are going to destroy your business are not the ones who are sh- shrieking shrilly into a microphone about how, how you go woke, go broke. They're the ones who are like, well, this isn't what I wanted. And then walk away and never interact with your brand again. And congratulations. There's a lot more of those. And you just killed your brand from disinterest. Yes. They're not laying the money down. But that was always the argument is that you can't just walk in to a brick and mortar store. So we should apply the same thing to the Internet when it comes to access to porn. And I'm like, I'll go you one further. I can't have a 10 year old or 12 year old walk into a strip club or an adult theater. So they shouldn't be able to walk onto the internet. I don't understand why we can't strip club or adult theater with automatic updates. It is. It's exactly what it is. That's what the internet is. It's a strip club or adult theater with automatic updates. You're right. And it's never going to be safe for children. So pretending it could ever be legislated or anybody can figure out a way to do it not going to happen. You know, the first thing in one of the comments, I think it was on the story on the Fox news site was again, somebody like, well, they should just put a chip in everything so it could be blocked and all porn has to stay on the XXX domain. It's like, well, here's the problem, asshole, a chip in everything. Yeah. Here, well, here's okay, the other they, problem here's where you went wrong. <laughs> yeah. Go on. Beyond that porn doesn't only exist in the XXX porn does not only exist in the porn hubs and the professional pornographers websites. Any place people can upload content, there will be porn. And there is. Yes. Twitter, there's porn. I mean, that's what killed. No matter how good your filtering tools are, there is. Uh Uh-huh. There's nothing you can do about it. So saying you're going to be able to block your kids from getting it, it's like, no. Your choice as a parent is good parenting. Have a lot of chats with your kid about what's on the internet. Watch what they do. Hopefully not online chats. Yes. Yeah. Do it in person monitor what they're doing and just realize that if they want to see porn, they're going to see porn. And the way to keep them from that is don't give them a device. And there are, there's a certain age. We should have a conversation as a whole society. There is a certain age where it should be too young to be on the internet. And there is a, you can have a lot of debates. I mean, I understand the, well, high school kids, it's really helpful to be on the internet because it helps with their learning and their homework. And, like yeah but you know are they ready for that i'm willing to i'm willing to stipulate that there probably is an age that's too young to be on the internet for one thing you know at some point when your fingers are only a month old and haven't developed you can't really use the keyboard very well true you have to be able to spell i am i am officially against setting an age across all society because that automatically leads to then people wanting to enforce it by at gunpoint I'm against that. Now, but it all comes down to parenting. That there is an age. Yes, I agree. There is an age where parents, if they are responsible parents, they will keep their kids off the Internet. They should be the gatekeepers. They should be the ones doing it because you need a device 
in order to access the internet. If your kid can go out and buy his own, you know, phone with a plan, well, then I guess they deserve to be surfing for porn if that's what they want to <laughs> use their allowance on. But you don't have to give your kid a tablet at 10 years old and just say, go play. You don't have I to do that. I also think that, that you're being hopelessly optimistic about the quality of parents available in these days. Well, I think it's I mean, horrible. Yes, there, there are good people out there, but there's also a lot of people out there. You just told them you need to have the birds and bees chat with their kid. And they'll be like, oh, is there an AI for that? Yeah, chat GPT, go to that and just say, what are the birds and the bees? Now, that's I wonder what the answer is for that one. Now, I kind of want to look that up, See? but I'm not going to do it during the show. <laughs> It'll be good content for a future program. If it's good content anyway. If it's good. But that is yeah. that's the whole thing. It's like parents, you have to be in charge with any of this kind of stuff. And you have to understand that there is an age that's too young. And I just don't know if they don't realize what's on it. The one thing I did take umbrage with on this survey was like half of the kids that responded to this said they came across pornography without meaning to. And I don't know. Yeah. I use the internet a lot. I want to know anybody out there. When's the last time just out of nowhere, you were just doing a search for something and all of a sudden, Oh, porn. It doesn't I, happen with regularity. I'm, at least not, not, to I'm me. not well equipped to answer your question for the simple fact that I can't remember a time when I didn't want to find porn on the internet. Right. But when you weren't looking for it, how often does it just pop up? I mean, when's on, the last on time my you computer? Oh, well, okay. You might have a script set. <laughs> Ryan, you haven't watched enough porn today. Well, I do. And I do in fact have a, there's a script that will, uh, change my desktop background on a timer why of that i have three backgrounds that change every 30 minutes but not to porn so oh see that's that's exactly you know a lot of people will turn on that feature i think it's in windows and be like oh yeah use all of the built-in landscapes or something i'm like no let me give something that i want to see on my computer servo says every time he does an image search i don't want to know what he's searching for and by default i think most image searches block that unless you specifically say give me porn i mean i think there's usually blabbing it can happen but it's very rare i don't believe that most people are accidentally running into porn i could be wrong i don't, I, I don't know that it's an accident either right <laughs> just like i well i accidentally uh typed in blonde blowjob schoolgirl outfit yeah. and you know then i got porn i didn't mean to yeah, I, I accidentally typed in the word pointy chick into my browser. And, and I you got, got that, that Larry show dot com. Right. <laughs> That's what you should get if you type that in. If not, the search engines are not doing their job. They are not doing their job. But yeah. So if your computer uh, did well, reboot, you know the, then you're 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 OK. You're OK. You got your Windows updates. Don't nothing to fear. You know, the search engines are uh, they're all going to be obsolete anyway soon because of chat GPT because of chat GPT. Of course. It's taking and, care of everything. At least that's what Adam Curry of No Agenda seems to be going on about that. This this is has become a pretty big thing to him. Is the you know, Google last month issued uh, what was called a code red over the rise of Chat GPT. Um, the, the actually from the New York Times. I'm going to read a, a, an excerpt from that. ChatGPT can serve up information in clear, simple sentences rather than just a list of Internet links. It can explain concepts in a way that people can easily understand. It can generate ideas from scratch, including business strategies. 
Christmas gift suggestions, blog topics, and vacation plans. Have you used ChatGPT? Do you think they have? I have not. So I'm probably not the correct person to ask here, but nothing is from scratch because it is all being aggregated from the information available to it. Actually, one of the criticisms of ChatGPT is that it is making some shit up from scratch. Really? Yeah, that's kind yeah, of interesting. They, uh, the the researchers call them AI hallucinations, where it <laughs> is just make it. It'll ask ask somebody will ask it a question that it doesn't have the answer to in its data set or can't can't glean it out. So the AI, the ChatGPT, is actually making stuff up. That's an interesting thing. Um, it it writes code full of but you know lots and lots of attention has been posted i read a bloomberg article that uh that that summarized as uh chat gpt is capable of generating racist and sexist responses now the fact that it generates responses means racist and sexist to people who write in bloomberg so i don't know but a lot of people are are spilling a lot of ink about chat gpt is you know i i don't know it's getting a lot of attention a lot of uh uh, it writes code full of bugs. Um, I heard on a podcast just last week that it has an obvious leftist bias. I believe that. I think that was our podcast because the internet has an obvious leftist bias. <laughs> yeah, so, so the the input. Well, and the you know they don't say what their input data sets are, but you can tell for. I mean, you can tell for one thing they poured Wikipedia in there, which has an obvious leftist bias. There's a lot of. Uh, of stylistic things that very much look like uh, New York Times, WAPO, the, the the big old publications. There's stylistic choices. In fact, the New York Times says the information is in clear, simple sentences rather than just a list of Internet links. I read you a ChatGPT excerpt that was four paragraphs to answer a simple question. That's not... It's not clear. It's not simple. It can explain concepts in way that ways can be easily understood. I, I'm not sure this is true. And this is why I have to go out and disagree with Adam. ChatGPT is not going to replace a search engine until it discovers conciseness. Until right. it stops being. If, if you have to read an entire blog post to get the answer to your search, people are not going to use this instead of search engines. A lot of people want a simple list of internet links. I'm like, you know, give me a, an internet tool that can filter out all the non-porn off my website. And Google will give me a list of internet links because there's 27 open source projects that have done that, of course. Chef ChatGPT gives me a, a fucking Greenwald article. I don't want that. Well, it's not going to replace a search engine. It could replace, it sounds like, a podcaster because we take very simple things and stretch them out over a two hour show because it's entertaining. Well, that's what I do. And, and here's, here's the thing that I, I think I've figured this one out, at least with regards to the New York times article, the reason that they think that it is clear, simple sentences, easily understood is because chat GPT writes like them, right? Chat GPT is not going to replace Google search, but it might replace the New York times. Well, there has to be some part of that programming that gave them a outline or gave them a uh, more of a, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, that they can say, hey, this is what it should look like when you're done. 
you know, the template oh, is the yeah. word I'm looking for. And and the, it gets the template through machine learning when you feed New York Times and Reuters and Associated Press and you feed all of these mainstream periodicals into it and give it examples of these are what articles should look like. Of course, it's going to generate everything that looks like that. It's writing essays because you fed it essays to train the data set. And so that that's that was the the thing that really stuck with me is this is not going to replace search because it's not communicating with normal people. But it stands a pretty good, you know, especially if it's coming out and making up stuff with from with no sources from whole cloth that are just complete left wing lies. Yes, that's going to replace New York Times. Right. We don't need that many more. That's fantastic. I like that part. I also (laughs) like the ability of it to learn how to code and be able to code, even if it's done poorly. I find that to be very intriguing. So can you really go to chat GPT and say, give me a JavaScript that'll do this? And it'll do it. I have not tried this because that's interesting. Uh, that coders everywhere should be paranoid. See, uh, when when I'm when I'm strapped for time, I don't actually try things myself, which makes the quality of the show suffer. I read an article where somebody got code from ChatGPT. I don't know how that worked. See, it is wild too for that concept because that would bring some things home to people that they wouldn't normally be able to do themselves. But if it's done in a way, this reminds me of the early days of creating websites where I learned the whole deal. You know, you learn the HTML tags was a little simpler back then. And then programs like front page came out for Microsoft and it was a what you see is what you get kind of editor. And you would put the same you would try to do the same thing on the screen. And it was technically way easier but then you looked at the code that it generated to do the same thing and you're like wow that's dirty that is not the most efficient way to do it it did things in weird ways but that's kind of sounds what this is we've had tools that we didn't call them ai at the time but we've had tools that that can create really crappy code in bulk that that is full of bugs like if you remember microsoft front page yes or you know what? Actually, we have a very effective system for generating really crappy, buggy code in bulk. It's called CompSci students. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you don't put them into a, a CPU yet. I, I don't know. This, that might be what colleges are doing these days. Could be. Now you just have an AI that'll do all your homework for you. I mean, I can see this is going to change. I think we talked about the last episode, the whole concept of turning in essays. The whole you have to stand up and explain yourself is going to come back in force because you won't be able to trust the printed word. And I know there are people putting together. We talked about it on the last show. Has there ever been a time in your lifetime when you could trust the printed word? No. I mean, most words before today were written by people and people are not very trustworthy. So when you always knew that if something was printed out and you handed it in at school somebody else oh, could have done yeah. your homework is what i'm saying yeah which somebody again else. has always been possible we're just finding ways to have a computer do it instead of a fellow student yes which is even better because now i know this is what the you know the people are screaming about i don't even know if it's a, a particular political orientation that's yelling that this is going to ruin education 
because kids are no longer going to have to learn because they're basically going to have their own friendly chat GPT that can do all of their homework for them. But I would say then you just don't understand how to educate a child because you can well, still have classrooms without Internet and access to a chat GPT. I, I don't think that this is a solution to creating uh, educated, smart, well-adjusted people. But it I, I don't know it, you, if you talk about the idea of it completely replacing and destroying the academic system, then I can only get so erect. <laughs> yeah, because that that well is already wrecked itself. Yeah. It's a the, very the expensive system, system. The academic system has reduced itself to doing to students what this AI can do. I, I'm just, it's not setting a very high bar to say, oh, it can replace universities. Okay. So can my cat. Yeah. Well, universities have already been replaced by the internet and laptops. There yeah. are, are universities giving out degrees for people that do nothing but sit in front of them allegedly and take the classes online. As opposed to when you've got all of these hundred year old buildings and you force people to sit in front of a laptop in a classroom. Right. It's not much different, I guess, is what I'm saying. I mean, I mean, admittedly, it's been a long time since I've set foot on a college campus, but like remote learning is the same as what used to be called an online degree and derided. And now it's kind of what everybody gets. You know, and now it's a lot easier to cheat because you don't have to go onto a website and buy a paper from somebody that you hope isn't in the database when they do a plagiarism search. Now you have a device that can take all of that information and basically remux it into a different format that you can turn in and maybe get away with it. That is the interesting part about this is that it used to be. You know, if you were to get the cliff notes of a book, you know, and had to do a book report, well, you still had to get some kind of understanding of the material. And then you had to rewrite that in your own words. I never thought cliff notes were were a real problem because the very act of writing it down makes you think about the content for however many hours. Yes. And that right there, you can't help. But think if you think about something for several hours, you can't help but get some understanding of it. You know, and I wonder, can like chat GPT, would it give you something quite different if you were like, give me a sixth grade book report on the Lord of the Flies and then give me a college aged book report on the Lord of the Flies? Would you be able to like even go that route? Because then, you know, if you were not so good of a student and you'd, you could actually dumb it down a little bit. So it appeared to be. The interesting thing about machine learning is if there's a demand for it, then yes, it'll probably show up somewhere. At That's some awesome. Point. Yeah. It, it already, it has already understood begun to understand what ELI five means. I don't know if it dumbs it down, but the explanation, if you say ELI five, something then it will give you an explanation that it is. Well, ELI five doesn't actually mean explain like I'm five. It means explain like I'm a Reddit user, but that's what everybody understands. <laughs> right. But I repeat myself. But that is fantastic. I, yeah. If, if if it's actually giving a different essay, which it might be, I'm not sure. I, and I, if there I don't was have enough this of a random seed where, you know, say you have a hundred students in a class who all are doing the same project. And all hundred give the same exact parameters to chat GPT and they get a hundred different essays. So they're not the same. That would be great too. I do know that when two people 
when two different users request the same thing from it, you will not always get the same result. You don't like it. It's not deterministic. You don't get the same thing word for word. It's like you it's constantly evolving. Twice. Yeah, it is. Well, I don't know if evolving is the right word, but it's it's making shit up on the fly. Which is basically so adding know, I, a random seed, right? That's pretty cool. I, I'm not. I'm, I'm. I guess I was I was triggered a little bit by uh, Adam Curry going on about how this is existential threat to Google. And I don't think it's there yet. It's I, an I existential you know, threat to society as a whole. Machine learning is is changing and, and I guess evolving all the time. And, it, it you know, again, it, it evolves in whatever direction the demand is. And if there is demand for people wanting New York Times articles when they just enter a search term, then, yeah, I guess it. it People will get that. And well, what's interesting to me is I don't know if we ever talked about it on the show, but the way books are written, James Patterson is one, an author that if you pay attention, it seems like he releases three or four books a year because he does. And his system is quite different because, well, once he had the name brand recognition, meaning if you're a young author, you're not going to get the juice out of this. But one 99 percent of authors. Yes. But James Patterson, because his name is what sells, he got to the point where all he is doing is outlining the story, giving the characters their personalities. You know, he's given the and, character bio and, and sending it off to some poor schmuck to to, yes. play, to do the hard work, to do the details. Yes. And that's how he can do four books a year. Now, chat GPT might be able to be that schmuck that he sends it off to because it can learn wow. your style. I mean, if you ever watched a Christmas movie, we watched a couple of them this year. They're all the same format. If you've ever read romance novels, they're all pretty much the same format. Yes. Well, and we we talked about this last week on the topic of of jobs that can be automated away anywhere that you may have started out creative and then somewhere along the line, you fell into a formula. Well, creativity, I still don't believe it and and i don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime i don't believe that true creativity is something machines are capable of no but but they can fake it they can fake it really well and as soon as you fall into a formula you have put yourself in a position where you can be replaced by a machine yes because all it has to do is change the details that's all you have to do to, to take one novel and turn it into another most likely you change the details that's it and it's hard for a human to do that, but a and, tuned computer that may be right in the wheelhouse. And and when we talk about uh, what what is capable of what these things can do and the different, you know, it, it would be folly to assume that the AI machine learning chat GPT or whatever the next iteration is will never get better. Obviously, it's always getting better. Will it ever be as good as a human? I almost think is a philosophical question i'm feeling like in in my lifetime we're not going to get to the point where humans are completely automated away but there's a lot of things done today most of the soul draining jobs that we don't need humans for well and beyond that we've had the stories already of guys that wanted to marry their sex robots you don't think this is going to improve that technology like, oh, you can there, actually have a conversation. I, I have to admit the idea of having a wife where I have access to the source code is <laughs> is very appealing. 
Yes, and you can change the coding every now and then for a little yeah, exactly uh, a different as long experience. As it doesn't get automatic updates from somewhere. Right. See, then you're screwed because that's when the uh, robots start taking over. But this is already a problem with a lot of the millennials and Gen Zers where they're way too shy and they don't like confrontation and they're afraid of talking to people in the real world. This is only going to make that worse when you have a something to replace that. So oh, I, I don't want to talk to a real person, but I can talk to my computer or my robot and that I feel like I have a really strong connection with because, again, it's all just following a formula. But to you, it seems really real. Well, sure. The first time you see anything, it's novel, even if it is formulaic. That's that's how formulas work. Right. That's how you figure it out. And I'm intrigued by the technology and it is going to change the way everything is done. It is going to put a lot of people out of work. I don't think there's a question about that because for very simple things like answering the phone and sending you to the correct place. I mean, a lot of people don't like having to wait for a long message and then press, you know, Hey, if you want to talk to Ryan, press one, if you want to talk to Darren press, and this goes on, if you have a hundred people at your company, that's a little bit too long. But if something automated can pick up the phone and say, who would you like to speak to? And you give it the name and it can understand that and transfer you. That's fantastic. That operator that used to work there out of a job. Yeah. You're describing the buggy whip problem, though, and this is certainly not new to computers or the Internet era. There has times change industries and jobs, tasks become unnecessary. You know, back in the Middle Ages, there were servants whose entire life was emptying chamber pots and, you know, indoor plumbing put them out of a job. And did we mourn that? No, they went off and found more fulfilling things like, you know, emptying trash cans or something. Court jester would probably be one. New York Times journalist. Yeah, that's well, that's that's a little further down the line, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, it it's a philosophical question, and I think Sir Gene is probably better equipped to answer this than I am. But is it necessarily bad when technology improves and obviates a job? Well, it's certainly disruptive for the person who had that job, but theoretically, that person can be retrained. If they can't, it's a tragedy for that person. But as generations go by and we generate new people, we don't have people born today whose job it is to empty chamber pots. Right. We, we, I mean, we call them journalists, but the, the question is, when do we run out of jobs to where we just have to put everybody on the government dole because the AI and the computers are doing 98% of the jobs. I don't think that's in the cards. Not Uh, in our lifetime. I think that every time that a job is removed because of an advance in technology, technology is also creating something new that you can do. Now, that something new might be stupid, like uh, making TikTok videos or, you know, journalism at the New York Times. Journalism. (laughs) Right. But if if technology is not creating new jobs, then that means it's stopped and it's also not obviating the old ones. So I don't know. It's it's all about being adaptable to change is where I see it coming from. You just have the the tech you know, technology moves on. Things change. The, the needs of people become different. We don't need. You know, we don't need phone secretaries anymore because it's been automated. We don't need McDonald's fry cooks anymore 
Anything because robots can do that. Yeah. Well, we don't need McDonald's anymore because well, that too. stuff is terrible. But what has opened up? What has become available? And it, it's very difficult in the moment to see what the next new thing is. Because, you know, in the days when, you know, a hundred years ago, when horses were being phased off the roads by automated cars and we decried the fact that all of the industry around the horse and buggy were being destroyed. Who could possibly have foreseen that computer programmer or podcaster would become a profession? Is podcaster really a profession? Well, I'm not getting paid enough for it to be right. But that's the theoretically problem. somewhere. Some people are. And yes, things change. And but here's the thing. Once chat GPT gets to the point, we've already talked about and this was a year or two ago what descript and other companies are doing with voices you can program it with your voice with my voice you add that then to a chat gpt that can figure out our personalities and we never have to do a show again if my personality is so banal that i can be replaced by an ai then i hope somebody does it oh and it'll fit on a uh usb drive too i mean that's how easy this is going to be a floppy drive for right the three and a half inch floppy right just that's that's ryan bemrose right there just plug them in 1.4 megabytes right but it's using every last bit of that 1.4 megabyte but this is where it's interesting because you're, you hear a lot of this on youtube videos and i'm guessing this is just like text to speech but there's a lot of videos already being thrown out there with a really bad you know, computerized voice that appears to be grabbing text from somewhere else. This is going to change entertainment. I have a feeling it's going to change music first, but it'll eventually get to the point to where somebody will be, able, which is a bizarre thing to think about. That you'll just be able to type into a search engine type box somewhere like create a television show about this. And the whole thing will just be computer generated. And everything Was it Disney. I saw, I heard, I read an article the other day about how all of the extras and all, uh, like, no, was it Disney? I think it was avatar. It might've uh, been yeah, one of the Disney. big movies where they didn't have any extras on the set at all because they wanted, uh, they wanted secrecy and there were, so there were no extras on the set. They were all computer generated and all, even some of the characters that had voiced lines, if they were just, boring lines that you know just a throwaway were completely computer generated so that they could minimize the number of people on the set right you don't have to pay them that's yeah you don't have wardrobe we discussed at one point i forget the name of it it's like this person does not exist.com or something that if you just keep refreshing it creates a realistic looking image of a person but that person doesn't exist it looks like a photograph but it's not this is the kind of thing you got. This is uh, you, the, the AI overlords are coming. This person does Sorry, not I, exist. I think that's what it is. I just had to check there. There is nobody has yet. Nobody has yet registered. This porn does not exist. Nice. But this person does not exist. Does that's the site. And you just yeah. go. And every time you refresh it, a new picture shows up and it looks like a person, but it's not. I've, I've actually played interactive games that uh, are fairly obviously taken from that site. Really? Just, yeah, they just create characters so they can put images into their game of the character speaking. Let's just go get one. 
Nice. Well, again, you don't have to pay an actor. You don't have to use, you know, somebody's image. Yeah. It's it's you, great. You, the, the big thing is that you don't have to try to clear copyrights of the right. image. So if you're if you're creating something on a budget, like, a, you know, a, a choose your own adventure game is what I'm thinking of. And you've got somebody speaking and you just want a little photo of them. You don't have to worry about is the image copyrighted because it's AI generated. It can't be copyrighted. Which is amazing. Makes yeah. so many things easier. But th- this is the thing is right now you still need humans to use these things that the AI can pop out. You need the human to put them together in a way that really works. And sooner or later, the AI is just going to figure out how to do that itself. I, it, it might have already. This is true. We may not even be real. We may be AI right now. I have no evidence that you are an actual physical person. For all I know, you are running on a Raspberry Pi somewhere in Chirac. Right. It could be a No, I think I would need a little more horsepower than a Raspberry Pi, but that would be that would be impressive. I mean, most of it is just streaming from Spotify before no agenda. This is true. That's all you got to do. Just send in the <laughs> tunes, baby. And then you bring the crazy ideas and then you spew about them. And that's, that's half the battle right there. So also on the topic of future disruptive technology, uh, I got sent, I believe uh, one of the trolls. And unfortunately it's too long ago for me to remember. And I'm terrible at writing these things down. I got sent an article from uh, Bruce Schneier's blog uh, about a quantum computer and how the well okay so when when you think quantum computer what's the first application that always comes to mind crypto and uh breaking the well yeah the growth cryptocurrencies and crypto as far as keeping your secrets safe so this was a breathless article effectively saying the day is here crypto you know quantum computing has reached the point where it can destroy 2040 bit rsa and So I kind of titled this Schneier is clueless about quantum, but too arrogant to say so. Uh, The so he's talking about a. A paper that was published by a group of Chinese researchers and uh, what he says about it, a group of Chinese researchers has just published a paper claiming that they can, although they have not yet done so, break 2048 bit RSA. This is something to take seriously. It might not be correct, but it is not obviously wrong. Um. Yeah, it's wrong, Bruce. Uh, yeah, claiming it's like, show me proof. That would be well, a good place to go. There, there was a paper. There was uh, another, <laughs> another quote by him where uh, he said, uh, "Honestly, most of the paper is over my head, both the lattice reduction math and the quantum physics." And there's the nagging question of why the Chinese government didn't classify this research. But wow, maybe and yikes! <laughs> <laughs> what? That's okay. That's journalism at its best. Well, no, that I mean, that's the blog of a security guy, but he, he, Schneier has, I know that he still does legit security work and he's a freaking genius in the computer security era, but his blog is pop security half the time. He has become an internet personality through this blog and therefore you see things like, wow, and yikes popping into his blog. and. I don't know. I, well, it hurts I very the credibility much, a little bit. I very much respect what he does, but he has definitely dropped into some of the sensationalist traps. And I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to bash Bruce. I'm here to bash quantum though. 
a lot of people like the clickbait. And that's a lot what this sounds like when I saw this story. Yes. So short version on the, I, I actually downloaded the English translation of the Chinese paper and like him, I didn't fully understand the math, but what I did understand of it was enough to recognize that there's a lot of hand wavium in the paper. Um, the short version is the Chinese researchers have come up with a way to use conventional computing techniques to reduce the factorization space of large primes prior to feeding it to the quantum computer. So the problem with, you know, Shor's algorithm is the, the quantum algorithm, which if run on a sufficiently large quantum computer can easily factor huge numbers. That's, that's the promise all the time. That's why people freak out. Anybody who wants to use cryptography is, Oh no, quantum computers can destroy the, because Shor's algorithm, which is a theoretical algorithm that has only been implemented in very, very small batches, in theory, can break very large primes almost trivially. But, and I know this is not actually correct, this is not actually what's going on in the algorithm, but I'm going to give a, a metaphor for roughly how Shor's algorithm works, is... Quantum computer, you know, a quantum state is, is a variable that can be in several states at once until you collapse a waveform. That's kind of what the word quantum ultimately meant when Einstein was coining it. It is the ability to super, superimpose multiple states on one for the purpose of doing a lot of things in parallel. And the idea is if you have an, if you have a halting algorithm, then you come out at the end and theoretically only one of those states has actually made it to the end. And that's your answer. So it's kind of like building a computer that has a circuit path for every possible input in your entire problem space. And then any problem you feed it, it goes down all those paths all at once. And most of them crash and burn horribly. They, they fail, they halt, they, just don't produce a result, whatever. But theoretically, you get to the other end of this huge computer with billions of circuit pathways. And one of those circuit pathways has gone all the way to the end. And that's your answer. And it did it very fast because that particular pathway only had to follow a very simple number of steps. And we threw out all of the other things, all of the other things that were wrong that didn't work. We only went to the same one. It's kind of the same way that climate models work when you, build a hundred thousand climate models and then you wait five years and whichever one actually predicted things right then you look at it and go oh global warming you see this was right yeah let's forget so, about the four thousand that didn't get it right that's that's kind of at, at a blurry level that's how shore's algorithm works is you take a quantum computer and you have it run every path all at once and whichever path reaches the end there's your your break. And uh, in theory, if you have a quantum computer that can do this and an algorithm can do this, then yes, you have just destroyed encryption. But 2048-bit RSA needs a, in, in order, well, in order to break a password with N bits, you need a quantum computer with roughly 1.5 times N qubits in order to have all the right quantum paths available to you to run the algorithm. 
qubits are effectively physical components of a computer. Uh, IBM just uh, three months ago announced their newest, most powerful supercomputer in the world until the next one comes out called Osprey, which has 433 qubits, which is a far way away from the 3000 that you would need to break 2048 bit RSA. But using the conventional computing techniques described in this paper, in theory, you reduce the factorization space. They say they can do it with a quantum computer with only 372 qubits. And that is the thing that freaked out Bruce Schneier was breaking 2048-bit RSA with only 372 qubits when there exists a computer. I don't know how it works. I don't know if they've ever even fired it up, but there exists a computer that they say has 433. That's more. Theoretically, a computer exists that already does it. And so that on that alone, things were, were beyond the point of going back because it's been done. Is that kind I mean, of what he's upset about? Well, he's he, he he was freaked out by the, oh, no, the number of qubits you need has been reduced to lower than the number of qubits that's available. And that would be very alarming. But the conventional computing techniques that were used and, and to Schneier's credit, he fixed this in an update since I wrote up the story. I checked it this morning. The conventional computing technique, by the way, conventional computing techniques means we could already do this. You take quantum out of the equation. And if this actually worked, it would already be destroying things by significantly reducing the, the search space for brute forcing, but right. whatever. Well, and this is only talking about crypto that is using just a password, right? Because well, there's something now, the only thing I really play around with a lot is VeraCrypt, which is an open source project that anybody can encrypt their data with. And one of the things you can do beyond having just a password would be to add a key file to the equation, which means not only do you need the password, you need that key file as well, which makes it nearly impossible to crash that or to crack that well, rather. With it makes a it nearly impossible to brute force because right. you every bit in the key file becomes a bit in the key, which significantly increases the key space. Which you need in but, order to so, right brute forcing. You know, so, so direct direct brute forcing doesn't work as soon as you bring in a key file. Right. And now the question involves, okay, well, which file did you use? Because there might be, you know, a hundred billion, you know, if you use a one kilobyte file, there's there's two to the thousand possible files. That is a huge key space. That's crazy. But how many files are on your hard drive? Okay, we seize the hard drive. We well, and is it on the hard drive? That's the other thing. Don't put well, it on yeah. your hard drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but seriously, I, at some point, there's lots of things that you can use, like just using longer passwords, using yes. key phrases that are very resistant to conventional brute force attacks. But you know, correct horse battery staple is a longer key, a longer passphrase that is resistant to brute force because it's got a lot of bits in it, but it's, much simpler uh it's it's very vulnerable to rubber hose cryptography which if you're not familiar is when the attacker instead of attacking your computer just goes and gets a, a rubber hose i don't know why the the phrase is rubber hose and not lead pipe but whatever and beats you with it until you tell them the password <laughs> i don't know i don't know the password that's it's called rubber hose cryptography i don't know why it's called that but 
It's when you get beaten until you tell them the password. And it's a very effective cryptanalysis technique that doesn't isn't entirely in the space of the computer. Which is no, exactly why in I don't know why it's not called lead pipe crypto, cryptography. Right. It's beat the crap out of you crypt, cryptography. But yeah, that's exactly. why if you investigate VeraCrypt at all, they have the ability to have a hidden encrypted partition within an encrypted partition for that exact reason, which is if somebody knows you have an encrypted drive, you give them the password, but it only brings them past the first level and they yes. see nothing. Yes. Which is a security by obscurity technique, but uh-huh. um, it's, it's effective or it wouldn't exist. I have just been informed it's rubber hose crypt analysis. Well, that could be too. Yes. By somebody in the know. I, I, I apologize for getting my terms wrong, except I don't mean it. It says any file can be used for the key file. However, we recommend that you prefer compressed files such as MP3, JPEG, zip, etc. So what you just, you know, that, uh, you know, that favorite picture of Taylor Swift that's on our website. Well, you could just use that. I mean, you better you have could. a backup just in case it changes, but yeah, that's another, be, another in case way she to upload, do it. updates a new one and all your passwords become invalid. Yes. And then you can't get to your, into your uh, hard drive. But but you can get around that by, of course, saving the image to your hard drive. Right. And within <laughs> with another 5000 Taylor Swift pictures, it would take a long yeah. time for somebody to figure out which one it but, is. But if somebody understands what you're doing, then their key space is not the the thousands of bits in the image. Their key space is now 5000 Taylor Swift. Right. Images. Right. So, plus a password. though. Uh, yeah. Uh, plus a password, which which may or may not have. Uh, OK. Anyway, so. The 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 lead that was being buried, in fact, it was in in the update from Schneier's article, was that apparently their technique, which they sort of hand waved the researchers. Oh no, people in academia hand waving some things that are inconvenient to their paper. He relies heavily on a factoring paper by Peter Schnorr from 2018, I think, uh, which Schneier points out, and I didn't read this paper because I just read about it this morning, but. Uh, so I'm taking Bruce's word for it. Schneier points out that the factoring paper works very, very well at low numbers, like the 48 bit number that the researchers were able to factor using a 10 bit, 10 qubit computer, but breaks the algorithm breaks at higher ones and quote, nobody understands why the Chinese <laughs> paper says that it gets around this limitation, but doesn't say how, which means skepticism kicks in. Super secret so, sauce. What we have here is some researchers saying uh, we factored a 48 bit number, which, by the way, a 48 bit number. Not super small, but it's only a few million key space. It's it's the key space of a six character password, 48 bits, eight bits per character. So, OK, whatever. They factored a 48 bit number using a 10 qubit quantum computer. For 2048-bit RSA, a straight application of Shor's algorithm would require 3,000 qubits, which the technology does not exist yet. They say they can do it with 370. There are a few supercomputers in the world, but I and Bruce are both skeptical that the algorithm they used would scale up. Even if it doesn't, you take the word quantum out, and if the algorithm they used is correct, then you can still significantly scale down the key space and use conventional uh, brute force algorithm to 
crack these things in days instead of years if you manage to scale down the key space. So if the researchers are not spewing entire piles of bullshit, this is still a problem taking quantum out. Quantum is just clickbait for headlines. If the researchers are spewing bullshit, which my skepticism suggests, then yeah, okay, uh, quantum is clickbait. I miss the days where you could just download the hashed password file off a server and run it through Jack the Ripper. I mean, that was fun. So anyway, my conclusion to this is the theory of quantum. We can break thousands of bits. All passwords are null just as soon as we get it working. The reality of quantum, the trick, we broke dozens of bits in the lab using the latest thing. Uh Uh-huh. Once we get it working, then it'll be. But when will that be? I don't know. It it will be as soon as we get enough funding. Which is why it's important to always lock down your things with good passwords and probably YubiKeys for things that allow it. Because the YubiKey kind of like the adding an extra key file in Veracrypt makes it a lot harder to get into your stuff. You need that information. And I wonder yeah. if any of these crypto things have the ability. I don't think Veracrypt does. I've never seen anything where it's like you can incorporate that with the YubiKey. But once you're able to do that, that also adds a whole nother level of things to where, okay, we know the straight on brute force thing is eventually going to work, which is why all of these companies want you to do two factor authentication and all this to try to keep things more secure than just a password because we know at this point in time a username and password is not the most secure thing you can do especially if you run across a system for people that are worried about security if you have sensitive information on a web-based site that you put in the wrong password 10 times in a minute and it doesn't lock you out then that's probably susceptible to brute force. If somebody's really if, trying if to I get may in. make a recommendation, stop keeping your sensitive information on web-based sites. Yes. Well, now most your bank, you know, even I'm sure your credit union, there's a way to access that. I mean, you yeah, may it's be called able- walking into the branch. <laughs> yeah. But people don't want that. They want to have it on an app. They want to be able I to know, go online. Convenience Trump security every time. But again, that's where it's like it would be important to have like, hey, let me secure this with the YubiKey. Of course, then if you lose your YubiKey, you got problems. But I mean, I guess you can always go reset it in person at your local bank or whatever you need to do. So NetNed, I think, kind of nailed the gist of my quantum story, which is not the first time I've railed against quantum with this theory. But he said, it'll be here in five more years. Said the first time that I heard about quantum computing destroying cryptography was I was in college in, in a CS class and uh, it wasn't in a class. I never learned anything useful from, from lectures in class that college isn't like that, but you're around a lot of people who are very interested in this. And it was uh, one of the clubs or something cryptography club. I think I might've broken the first rule of cryptography club, but Shor's algorithm was the thing that came out that was, it was, it's always been the promise. Shor's algorithm was developed by Peter Shor, a mathematician in 1994. As a mathematician, he doesn't have to care about putting things into practice. He just spews theory onto paper and that's as far as math cares. But 
the first, like I said, I was in college, which I was in college in the late nineties after 94, when this was developed at the time they were saying, well, what this means is that cryptography is going to be completely destroyed in five years. And every single time I've heard of that promise from quantum computing, it's been in five years. Quantum is always five years away. It will be until such time as we finally decide we that maybe it'll get working, but I think more likely we're finally going, somebody is going to build a mathematical paper to prove that, you know what, this actually doesn't do what we need it to do. Uh, we've, we've proven it doesn't work. Uh, I guess we're going to abandon it and then it won't be five years away. Well, and until then look, people are going to keep searching. Yeah. Well, you look at the amount of things that are going to be then cracked. If the current security models that we have become obsolete, like, well, you know, everything, I mean, including whatever happened today with the FAA, with all the flights being grounded. It's like, you have to wonder, was there a hack? All of this very sensitive government information, everything's attached to the internet, nuclear reactors. It's like, this is really a recipe for disaster. To be honest, I don't wonder if there's a hack. You're pretty much sure there was something going yeah, on. Yeah, fairly confident. With uh, all of a sudden, all planes, and, and my wife's like, yeah, is is it any coincidence that it's January 11th? You know, it's six months I mean, after September 11th. Uh, that that sort of thing all happening at once four is either a, a massive interconnected system or uh, a humans organizing on a level. And I don't remember hearing anything about an air pilot controller strike. No. So, uh, yeah, they just don't want you to know because, you know, it's very safe to fly. Nothing to worry about. Nothing to worry about at all. Oh, oh, Billy Bones has the answer to that one. He says it's a glitch. Oh, yes. Well, that was the word that was used in the <laughs> the first news story that I, and I think got just the well, news. Well, that explains everything. Just a glitch. All those planes in the air flying around willy nilly. Nothing. Nothing to see here. It's, uh, I don't know. And again, security. If all the security disappears overnight. You better wonder about what's going to happen to your money, what's going to happen to all of your crypto funds, because that means the things that are used to secure all of that become fairly useless immediately. Yes, yes. Quantum makes for fantastic bedtime stories. To yes. Until scare it happens. The little children into line. Is that what we're trying to do? Scare the children into line? It, well, I mean, it's a it's a beneficial side effect, but. Yeah, that's true. I, I don't think it's going to happen. I I. I'm there's there's a lot of cases where people will try very, very hard to crack something. Self-driving cars, another example. People will try very hard to crack a hard problem, and it's always a few years away and it never actually happens. And then eventually somebody goes, you know, I've actually proven it's not possible. But until we prove it's not possible, there are going to be people who are buying into the hype and love the promise of being, you know, the the. U.S. federal government, who has the license to print trillions of dollars, can go ahead and point those dollars at people who say, you know, we want to we want to break crypto. OK, here, here's a billion dollars. I I feel like that would be far more lucrative than podcasting is to go out and say, yeah, I have figured out an algorithm for quantum that breaks all crypto. Give me money. And as soon yes. as they give me money, I'll be like, yeah, I'll, I it didn't work as well as I did, but here I'll publish a paper so that you can cite it anyway, even though the paper's full of bullshit. It, I thought it, it would the work. The system is corrupt. I thought it would work. It's all corrupt. 
I can claim I thought it worked and then, and then just disappear into obscurity with my money. Uh, where's the problem? I'm just saying it has, it doesn't look like the problem is one of technology and it doesn't even look like the problem, you know, the, the size of computing of quantum computers being created is not commensurate with the size of quantum computers needed to get the promise. And we're always saying, Oh, well, if we just get a bigger one, if we just get a bigger one, we already have a room size quantum computer that's capable of breaking an eight character password. Okay. Well, eight character passwords, brute force techniques were pretty good at that a while back. Rubber hose cryptanalysis was pretty good at that a while back. We tell people eight character passwords are not secure. And that's state of the art. I just don't see it. No, I would agree. But a lot of people still use very short passwords. And sure. we still run into and, and websites. And by the way, I passwords. still use very short passwords. If all I'm securing is my login for a mod download site for a game or something. It, if the only thing I care to secure is my account on a forum where I once asked a tech support question, I don't need a 2048 bit password. You're okay with somebody hacking that and doing whatever they want. Yeah. I'm okay with somebody hacking that and taking my, my name blarg three, two, one that I created with a fake email account. Wait, did chat GPT come up with that for you? No, I, I had to be creative on my own. This was before I had computers to do it for me. Oh, see, that's it. We want the computers to do everything for us. Make I, us our money, yeah. bring us a beer, then everybody's I mean, happy. They, there are absolutely things that are very important to secure. And for that's the reason why we talk about it, the good security practices. Let us not lose sight of the fact that just because you want to download a driver for the new mouse that you got and they force you to create an account in order to download the driver, that doesn't have to be secured with your YubiKey. No. That can possibly be secured with the word password and a fake email address because screw you guys. I just wanted to download something and that shouldn't even require an account. Yeah. NVIDIA is like that. And it is infuriating that you can't download the latest driver without, Oh, log into your account. Like why? I just need the fucking driver. Yeah. So, which is why I create a new account every time. <laughs> Keep those fuckers from tracking you, man. Hell Yeah. Uh, there was a story Twitter hit with a $228.9 million copyright infringement repeat infringer lawsuit, which I thought was kind of interesting. What? Okay. Well, we, we know for sure that copyrighted material occasionally gets posted to Twitter. Yeah, I know. Can you believe that? It seems, <laughs> it seems unbelievable that this could actually happen. I, it, it, it's hard to imagine that anything copyrighted might've made it to the site, but you have to believe it. It's happened somewhere. And this is a celebrity photo agency that is suing them. And it's like, well, what did you think was going to happen? You know, I mean, this is a concept and I know they pointed to a few different accounts and this the, was interesting to me because one, we all know that any picture you see or video you see on Twitter that isn't, you know, somebody's podcast with their face talking or a picture of themselves, most likely they don't own the rights to the image or whatever they're posting, believe it or not. People pass shit around. You don't say they put, you know, movie stills and whatever else into memes. They don't own that shit. That's not legal. Wow. It's like the paparazzi before the internet. It's almost like people are unethical and computers aren't a requirement for that to happen. Uh Uh-huh. 
But yeah. to me, the, the, the thing that I thought was interesting just from reading this, because one, I don't think this group is going to win this lawsuit against uh, Twitter because the concept that you can actually moderate copyrighted well, content. Have, have they ever encountered a, a concept called Section 230? This is exactly what Twitter, and I think that's why Twitter has just been ignoring them. But I guess they put uh, 6,700 DMCA notices this one company did to Twitter to have this stuff removed. And I guess Twitter okay. has not removed any. Oh, a, a lawyer's ability to generate a copious amount of crappy paperwork is does not actually make their case have more merit. No, but I was kind of curious when you put in a link. So when this episode's done, if I go onto Twitter and say, hey, new grumpy old Ben's and I put the URL in of our website where the episode is, Twitter is going to pick a photo, most likely the photo we used for the episode of the artwork, and it's going to put that onto Twitter. But when you put the link, you're not telling them to choose a photo. So I'm wondering, is that? copyright infringement because that's not even the user doing that's not the user going to get a photo and putting it if you know you go to any random website you link to a story on cnn or fox twitter's magically going to pick a photo on that page to put as part of the story as part of your link now that i'm wondering who's responsible for because the person who gives the link doesn't choose the photo my my not a lawyer answer to this where I just make shit up and uh, go by what I've learned. Yes, it is absolutely copyright infringement. However, as an affirmative defense, it's fair use. Right. Because it's linking. You to, published it. Yes. And it's linked. Well, and it's linking to you. So we have had that argument where we didn't understand where people are like, yeah, but we're going to charge you to put links to your website. Like, but no, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> You know, that, it, it does if you're in Europe or California, which are places that are starting to pass laws like that or Australia, but they learned better. But that was the no, most interesting really. thing they, to they, me. They went ahead with it. It was the, the only change to the Australian law was they limited it to only a few companies. Ah, that's so right. They, it we, had to be large enough. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 the, the, yeah. The laws that tar the bill of attainder laws says, we're going to severely regulate, but only if you happen to be this company. I mean, Billy Bones, I understand the photo chosen within the target website's HTML, but the person posting that link didn't post the photo. So that is Twitter actually going out on their own and reposting copyrighted content. That and there's you, nothing. And that's not 230 because that's the site itself doing it, not the person. The person that posted the link didn't post the picture. I I think there has been some case law about third parties posting links to content. And in general, it's pretty well accepted that that is fair use, not necessarily 230, but fair use, which means they're going to have a very difficult time going forward with the lawsuit. But that it's if they if they can make the argument that it's not 230, what that does is it makes the lawsuit go forward. And force Twitter to actually defend. Right. Whereas if it's a clear cut 230 case, then the judge will throw it out because, you know, a Twitter lawyer just has to show up and be like section 230 and then sit back down and it's right. done. 
Right, because somebody posting the same photo of Anna Kornikova over and over again, there's only so much that can be done. And attaching a virus to it? Or right. No way. That was back in the day. That was the that good happened. old days. It's interesting. I mean, really, because it's an interesting uh, domino effect when it comes down to all of this stuff and trying to go, well, you know, I have a photo, you know, and this I'm guessing is a small group, much like, you know, Getty Images or something who are very, you know, very uh, protective of their images as well. I mean, so I get what they're I mean, trying they're- to do, but this is a social media site. This, if now, if I had a website up that was, you know, oh, I love Taylor Swift, and I was using their photographs on that website, you could shut it down. But social media is a whole different ball of wax, really. There, there have been. I mean, I, I kind of take Twitter out of this, as it's, it's kind of irrelevant to the argument. There have been a lot of copyright holders who got their panties in a bunch over the. The scenario is user swipes an image from site A right. posted on site B. Right. Uh, say if site B is Twitter or social media or uh, just a photo sharing site, it doesn't really matter. A lot of people really freak out about that. There are there's no legislated law that says this is, you know, there's no statutory law that says one way or the other. Um Courts have gone both ways. Uh, Adam Curry loves to tell the story about how he got a, a paparazzi site or something in the Netherlands to want a judgment against them because they were swiping his photos and doing something with them. I don't remember. Right. Because I believe he had them up under a creative commons, but not for use in a but commercial. I guess- I guess if you're a copyright holder who is strongly triggered by somebody swiping your stuff off the web and putting it somewhere else, you have an uphill battle in court for the simple fact that you put it on the internet. Yes. And you, once you, it's there, you posted it publicly. It doesn't it, go away. You know, legally speaking, it, you may or may not be able to control that image, but practically speaking, the moment you put it on the website and somebody links to it, Millions of people have now, if the, if the image is interesting, millions of people have it on your hard drive. It, like, go, go tell a, a porn actress that, hey, you want full control over your images so that nobody can ever use them. Like, okay, but millions of adolescents, every, the moment you put it on your Instagram, millions of people have put it into their personal spank bank and it's never coming out. Doesn't have to be porn, but. Any image, anything you put it on the Internet, it's out there. There's no unpublishing from the Internet. That doesn't happen. No. Do you remember the good old days when they would try to keep you from right clicking on a page so you couldn't save the image? Uh, That, believe it or not, was one of the original reasons why I started rolling without JavaScript. You're like, fuck that JavaScript. There was even websites that would. More like it was one of the first examples of people using JavaScript in a user hostile way. Well, yeah. But there were also websites that would cut images into multiple segments. So that way you couldn't just save one. You would have to save like however many pieces it was cut into. But, it, you know, on the Web page, it looked like one image, but it was really, you know, 20 images that were stitched together next to each other. Yes. 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 Dark patterns, user hostile design. Uh-huh. The good it's, old days. Well, it's 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 always been the root problem. DRM, which which cryptographically speaking when you are looking at the actual security theory behind DRM 
your root fundamental problem that DRM has never been able to get past is that Alice and Bob are the same person. Your attacker and your recipient are the same person. So you are trying to secure it against the person you are trying to give it to. That's why DRM fundamentally does not work. Because you end up pissing off your consumer. Yes. And because in order for your consumer to be able to use the image, you basically have to build in loopholes that they can, you know, that that keep them from being able to use or yeah. Yeah, people keep did your, not like when they put a CD into their drive and it went, no, I'm not reading this. Yeah. Um, well, that's <laughs> congratulations. You've increased security by reducing convenience. Yes. It was even worse, really. I mean, for the people that don't remember that you've, if you put one of these CDs into a windows machine, it basically installed a rootkit. Like, yes. Yes. Like that uh, was Sony a big deal. Yeah. Sony got fucked on that one. So, Sony music. They were actually music CDs that had a data partition as track one so that windows would read it as a data disc and auto run it. And there was an auto run batch file on the CD that would install a kernel driver. Uh-huh. That was no bueno. I never got caught by that because I was already at the point where I disabled auto run in any computer. <laughs> yes. Also. Don't do that. And then, you know, just get all of your music on Napster and it's a lot safer. It, it is. In fact, uh, if you can say a lot of bad things about piracy, but one thing that you will not find is uh, intentional malware, uh, at least not by the person who put, you know what? I, I don't know where I'm going with that because there's plenty of malware in piracy, but yes, well, it's, it, it, well, it's, there's plenty of malware in piracy when you're dealing with programs and yes, they're still programs. They're not apps, but, but data files should be treated as data. Yeah. Well, yeah. If you download a movie file or a JPEG or a music file, yeah, rarely have a problem. It's yeah. much harder to be pwned. This, this is something I, I call the MS office problem, which is that the moment that you decide to change your protocol such that there is code mixed in with your data, then sharing data files becomes a massive vector for malware. Oh yeah. And, and you know, I love a bitmap, a PNG, a JPEG file. There is nothing in the protocol that allows code to be run from those formats, which means if you have a non-buggy viewer that treats it as a data format, it's not pulling anything out that runs data. And then it's significantly harder. But if you get an old style Excel spreadsheet, which has rows and columns of numbers, which is what most people wanted to share. And somebody just wanted to see a table of numbers. And we've never had a really good way of, of sending a table. Nobody seems to get CSV, whatever. So people would send around Excel files and, oh, lo and behold, there's a huge amount of visual basic VB script in there or whatever, which has access to launch com components on your computer and your Excel spreadsheet can install drivers. That's part of the protocol because they put code in the data. Keep your code and data separate. That's good advice right here. Uh, that was advice for programmers, though. On grumpy old like I said. Like I said, uh, Microsoft is one of the big people who they may have learned that by now, but I don't think so because they still love their, their smart data formats. Any, any data format that's smart means you're putting code in your data format. 
And that means that you'd better be looking for vulnerabilities. Well, that's why there's a hundred different vulnerabilities every month that are patched. Just think of how many aren't being found yet. I, I try not to. That should scare you. Instead, I just don't update. So I don't get most of the new vulnerabilities. You don't get the new ones, but those old <laughs> ones that have been around for a long time. Yes. You are well. And by the way, for, for any listeners, gullible not to realize every word comes out of my mouth is sarcasm. That was sarcasm. You patch those things diligently with the latest Windows 4 patches or whatever come out. Are you on four now? Are you maybe Windows 4? Was that six? Maybe you were on. Huh? Which uh, version of Windows are you on now? Eight. Point oh, one. not four. Four was much better than eight. Uh, was there a four, four? Four. Yeah, there was four. It was it was called uh, Windows 95. Ah, OK. Actually, Windows, Windows NT4, Windows 95 and Windows 98 were all versions four. But none of and them were version, as good as XP. Version five was XP. Version six was Vista. And then Windows seven was 6.1, but called Windows seven. Uh, Windows eight, the version is actually Windows eight raw was 6.2 and Windows 8.1, which is what I'm running is 6.3 is the version number. They kind of somewhere along the line, they stopped the version number at six for a while. Why does anybody know why compatibility? Uh, because some idiot out there made a program that said, you know, get, get windows version number. If the first digit is a six, then do this. Oh, and instead of saying if it's six or later, it's if it's six <laughs> and the people at Microsoft who bend over backwards to make sure all software everywhere, no matter how buggy is fully compatible went, Oh, well, this software exists now and we'll break it if we move to version seven. So we'll just make it 6.1. In regards to the uh, Twitter lawsuit, uh, Sir Gene texted lawsuits are much better DRM. So I guess that's one way to, to look at that. That's a, just a different kind of DRM. Just file a Baron, lawsuit. Baron Spud, the mighty points out, uh, uh, I, I can't say for certain, but this sounds plausible that there was still a lot of software which still exists and they still wanted to keep compatible that would search the version string. And if it starts with windows nine, meaning 95 or 98, so they just check for windows oh, nine in the string. That would make it sense. Would do, it would do a certain thing. And he's claiming this is why they jumped to windows 10. I'm not sure that's the only reason, but I bet it was brought up in the meeting. It most likely, but that makes sense. Like nobody thought we were going to get this far with the numbering thing. It's so very confusing. Well, because Windows version numbers weren't really a thing back in the day. And then, and then when Windows 7 came out was right about the time, I think that uh, browsers were starting to say, screw this dot versioning. We're just going to create version 62 and 63 right. next week and 64 the week after. And Microsoft is sitting here going, well, we can do that too. Let's just put a number after each one and increment it every five minutes. That's why it should I think just they be slowed something. down from, from making service packs increment the number, but it would be easy. Just name it after the year it came out or something. Come on. And then, and then they came out with windows 10 and said, we're going to stick with 10 for a while because Apple we have did. never had an original thought in our heads. Right. And that's what Apple, Apple did. Right. With, yeah. It's Apple like stuck with OS 10 for 15 years. And so Microsoft can do the same. 
And in fact, I suspect that Microsoft's doing that was one of the reasons Apple finally moved on. They're like, yeah, we can't just keep this. We can just come up with different names to add on to it. And it's just confusing to the consumer. Like, well, I'm running, uh, as you said, the number 10 for Apple was like what three or four different versions that were just made up names after it is like who remembers this we just want something easy an incremental number is where you want to go are you hearing this what i guess not well you would have said something what's going on over there they coming for you no there is a cat who will not shut up i got it (laughs) i think she got stuck on a side of a door she doesn't want to be on like the opposite side from the food or something i'll be right back i gotta go gotta go take care of that cat while you're doing that we are a value for value podcast here at the grumpy old Ben's program, which means we put these shows out there. They're not behind a paywall. You hopefully get some value from listening to the shows. And if you do, we rely on you getting some of that value back to us for the show to remain vibrant and strong and as snarky as it has always been. And we do have a few people to thank for today's show. A very few, but that's okay. We know we're not loved. Joe Biden is ruining the economy. But that didn't stop our buddy Srinivas Murti coming in with his monthly $10 and one monthly donation. Our buddy Sir Truck Driver coming in with his $5 monthly donation. And the one and only NetNed coming in with 10,000 sats live during the show. We do the shows live. We have the ability to accept live boostergrams and messages. And NetNed coming in with 10,000 Satoshis, which today is worth about a buck seventy-five. With the note that says, I have a quantum toaster. Give me your email address and I'll send you a white paper on it. Well, we're going to hold you to that, NetNed. It would be uh, Darren, D-A-R-R-E-N, and Ryan, not one address, at grumpyoldbens.com. We'd love to see that white paper. Make you do a little bit of work. And coming in live right now, Carolyn Blaney with 8,888 Satoshi's Windows 3.1 was great. It had all the games. Tetris. Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? I like Windows 2000 too. Yeah, can you play that uh, that game where you get lost in the wilderness and then you die of diphtheria or whatever? Minesweeper. Right, Minesweeper. Right, that's exactly the one. What was that game called? The Oregon Trail. Oregon Trail. Yeah, I remember. Or, or one of my favorite takeoffs on that was one called the Oregon Trail, which was the Oregon Trail with zombies. Oh, that would even be better. I remember playing Oregon Trail in. It's pronounced Oregon. No, Oregon. The don't you know how to speak? Just because you live right up there doesn't mean you know what they call it. It's not like I grew up there or anything, right? So why would you know anything? But that was I remember playing that in junior high. So that had to be 1982 or 83, and that was like revolutionary on the computers at uh, at school. Good times. Again, pre-internet. Everything was better pre-internet. Everything was better pre-social media. No question about it. But we appreciate. I have a question about it. You do? I have a question about it. Okay. No, you. I was just contradicting you. Why would you do that? It's not like it's the formula that anybody's figured out for the show as of yet. (laughs) (laughs) But thanks, Srini. Thanks, sir. Truck driver, NetNet, Carolyn Blaney. You are keeping the show going. Yeah, yeah, on life support. Yes. If you want to uh, help out. You won't let it die. Uh-huh. We're That's flatlining. And they're just like, no, no, don't go away. There's three of us listening. Go over to Crumpy Old Ben's. 
com slash donate and uh, help us out. 87 live in the, it, well, you would yes. say in the troll, but on the live it, stream. It's only a matter of time before we get all the way up to that 1700 number. We're working on it. I mean, we yeah. can make it say that. Would that encourage more yeah, people? Actually, like, I, I do have the ability to make it say whatever number I want. Uh-huh. It's like, okay, now wouldn't that piss Adam off? Like, wait, Grumpy Old Ben has a bigger audience live than we do. <laughs> Got to get rid of those guys. They're nothing but trouble. Uh, but do that. GrumpyOldBenz.com slash donate. There's plentiful ways. If you don't like PayPal, that's okay. You can use the QR codes or wallet and addresses. And if you do like PayPal, what the hell's wrong with you? I mean, we'll take your money from PayPal. It's still a convenient way to go. And we haven't gotten kicked off. I wouldn't store a lot of money there. But the window or the windows. The podcasting 2.0 thing works as well. And I know Mutter the other day was in the troll room and I think he was just bitching because he's like, nah, nobody explains how to how to do this boosting thing. And I'm like, well, how do you where do you nobody want, knows? Right. Where do you want to do it from? It's easy, though. It's, here's the way if you really want to get into it. And if that's a legitimate question, the easiest thing you can do, you have to involve two different entities and apps, which I know everybody hates the apps, but the cash app is the easiest way to get involved with the podcasting 2.0. If you have the cash app and then it doesn't matter whether you're using something on the desktop or I think they have apps as well, Podverse or Breeze or any of these, but say I use Podverse mainly on my desktop. Now in Podverse, there's a way to just request the money to create a lightning invoice, which could be paid through the cash app. That's the money's going to come from your cash app. That'll can pay it in lightning to whatever podcasting app you want. So those are the two things you need, the cash app and a podcasting 2.0 enabled app. And you're good. That's all you need. See, my method was so much easier. I just SSH into my lightning node and use boost CLI. Yeah, that's way easier. Except somebody has to have a lightning node. There is that. You got to have that one. But it's not that hard anymore. It used to be a lot harder because that's the whole thing. It's like, well, how do I get money into it? And once the cash app, it will even, you you know, get the QR code. It'll generate a QR code, your podcasting 2.0 app. Like you can create a thing saying, hey, I want $20 in Lightning, create the invoice, and then cash app will pay it in Lightning right out of your bank account or whatever you got in the cash app. But it's something good to be involved in. It's because. convenient. In fact, it's so convenient. You have to wonder about the security, but I'm sure they're on top of those things. <laughs> well, that is also a question because I've got a, you know some money in the Satoshis and get Alby. There's really only one password and that's to be granted username and password. But yeah, this is all just the wild, wild west. And we're trying to figure it out as we go along. Well, like like everything in technology, it will. It will get better. It will get more usable. Things will change. Or it'll be broken by a quantum computer. A quantum computer might destroy Bitcoin. Yes. We're waiting for that. You never know. Bitcoin's doing fairly well today again. So the last thing I got is a little bit of science fiction from Corey Doctorow. Oh, what is it? Uh, He was discussing on, on Pluralistic, which I guess is his new blog space. He his boing boing kind of crazy and bang bang with bong bong plot. <laughs> i don't know uh 
anyway, uh, on the topic of orphaned neural implants, and uh, like many things Dr. O said, it resonated with me. Uh, he got a little bit more shrill than I usually do, but uh, the theme of it, I'm going to pull one line, which kind of describes the theme. It's hard to understand why anyone would use a startup's product. And that resonates with me. Uh, he goes to point out that startups have no incentive for wasting early capital on silly little things like security or robustness <laughs> or stable systems or IT practices or quality code because you need all that runway to take off. So everything you do early is move fast and break things. That's what startups do. And they're good. One, at of, one of the results is that data breaches are pretty much inevitable. Uh, you can't, you can't unbreach data. And, um, the other thing that he points out is that when a startup fails, which 90 plus percent of them do, the investors end up getting all the assets, but they don't want them. They sell off the assets. Nobody really cares about your chairs and tables and desks, but it's your intangible assets, mainly your databases, your patents, your intellectual property. The investors sell that off to get some of their investment back. Well, whoever buys that database is generally not bound by your end user or your privacy policy or end user license agreement. Right. So when you give your data to a startup or when you sign on with a startup, whatever policies they have in place, they, they probably have really, really weak security. Um, they may or may not put into a privacy policy any kind of requirements, but those re- those promises from their privacy policy usually are do not bind whoever buys their databases later. So the result is uh, when a startup, w- when you give data to a startup, there's a very good chance it's the same as posting it on Instagram or, or OnlyFans or wherever it is that you post your stuff. I don't judge. He brings up some... Uh, some examples, there was a, a product called cloud pets by a company called spiral toys cloud pets was, and, and tell me if you're going to go out and try to buy one of these, <laughs> a teddy bear, which you can talk to. And it records voice memos from the kids talking to their teddy bears to play for their parents or play back for them later. Or if you saw, if you have give special permission to one of the other cloud pets users it can be played from somebody else's teddy bear and it does that by storing the audio of every memo any child has ever said to it in an unencrypted database on the internet not creepy at all (laughs) i mean i can see where there's a market for that where you know oh grandma and grandpa want to give messages and let's we can change the message the bear is going to tell the kid you know or vice versa with regularity i mean we went through the early days of having the photo frames with the little computer monitor and you could grab so hey grandma and grandpa always feel like the kids are around because you know the kids can snap a picture at home and grandma halfway around the world the picture shows up in the frame but yeah this is a lot of unsecured data and it is and and because they were a startup the there were a lot of things that they just didn't think too much about, like security, like uh, um, protocol, like COPPA. Right. 
Yeah, you <laughs> you can't just take that and store it without. And over the course of their run, by the way, if if you were planning on running out and buying one of these, you can't. They oh, went out of business. Damn, I wanted three of them. Over the course of their run, they recorded 2.2 million memos for kids. Wow. Uh, their entire database of audio sat unencrypted for years on a publicly accessible server until last year when they finally stopped paying the power bill, I guess, because the <laughs> server went off the Internet. I mean, there could have been some really interesting stuff on there. Um, another example. Well, let's also uh, be honest. This would have been a great way for terrorists to communicate. Yeah, if anybody had ever heard of that product, it probably would have been a massive privacy nightmare. Somebody did. I mean, two point something million messages. That's more than a two or three kids, I hope. <laughs> Either that or it's a couple of very busy kids. Yeah, they're prolific <laughs> with the messages. They're tell- talking to their bears, man. I, I, it, it, I'd like to say this is a unique thing to them, but that's pretty much startup culture is, is you know, we'll worry about it in V2. That's that's the mantra. It's yeah. Move fast, break things, ship something really buggy. We'll fix everything in V2. Most startups don't ever get to V2. It's way and more important what to be happens, working than secure. What happens to all of the personal information, all of the personal stuff from V2? Well, there's another example he brings up where this is you, you think that having just your data and privacy compromised is creepy. We're going to step it up a notch. There is a company. I didn't write down the company name, but uh, optical implants under the brand name of Argus, which, quote, allows blind people to see. This came from a startup that started in 2004, where and this is uh, this not a big consumer product. They were charging people one hundred fifty thousand dollars per eye. To put in retina implants. It's uh, uh, blind people, by the way, because this will fuck up your vision otherwise. Yes, yes, it will. As somebody with pretty much one non-functioning retina, I'm like, this sounds like a great idea. But if you're already blind, what they're doing is putting in retina implants, which send little trigger or signals based on lights to your optical nerve. Now, obviously, not exactly a bionic eye. You can't see. But what it did allow was hundreds of people who got these implants to get uh, flashes of light, uh, a sense of direction and movement, uh, which is if you're completely blind and you go to the point where you get little flashes when somebody moves through the area in front of you, that is life changing. That is amazing. I, 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 this is an incredible product. I don't know if it was ready or not, but it was. I mean, I'm sure for those people, it was very cool. And then they went out of business in 2021. Nice. And the implants just straight up went offline. Oh, well, that's a bummer. Um, a new company ended up buying up all of their IP, all of their tech, but they determined that there's not enough money in it. So they're not investing in the tech. There's no support. There's no parts. There's no software patches. Um, it says that there are some people who have these retina implants that are still working for the moment, but if they ever go offline for any reason, they're never coming back because apparently it needs a, a signal or something to reboot or I, I don't know the details, but what you have here is a life changing 
assistive device that just straight stops because a startup went out of business. Which is why you want technology from companies that'll be around like Pfizer. And then there were also, by the way, there were also reports from some users of these optical implants of, quote, crippling vertigo now that the implant stopped working. Oh, well, that's not good. <laughs> so, um, well, uh, you know, what you also have is bits of metal and plastic implanted in your body, which. Um, yeah, I mean, that's questionable at this point. They're, they're, they're not doing anything good at this point, so they might be doing something bad. Who knows? Yeah, they're getting there. I mean, they're getting there. I mean, I've seen things they were working on with the implants, which would basically give you what our computer monitors looked like in the 80s. You know, very stick figurey kind of interpretations of the world. But as you said, any little bit when you have no vision is life changing. Yeah, I just just something that flashes or or gives you a sense of how bright it is can be the difference between. I mean, it can be literally night and day. They're working on it. I mean, I don't know if we'll see it in our lifetimes, but uh, I, I, anyway, I, I love the idea of the technology and the idea that a co the company went out of business and now you've got this thing stuck in your body, which is no longer providing you any benefit through no fault of your own and might be destroying your brain. Always uh, other again, it's it's people will do it because it's a last ditch effort. I'm sure it was great while it lasted. Right. It, you know, the, maybe maybe the real problem here is that after that company went out of business, nobody decided to pick up support for it. Right. That this might be uh, a good thing to keep going. There, the, there are other examples of such abandonware uh, in uh, the cyberpunk abandonware, as Dr. O says. Um, ATI had a neural implant for reducing cluster headaches. Uh, discontinued. Um, New Vectra. Had a spinal cord stimulator for chronic pain. I don't know what that means, but Nuvectra went out of business. Uh, uh, freehand company paralysis bypass for hands and arms. I don't know what that means. Okay. Anyways, these are examples given. I haven't looked up all of these, but there are companies out there who have put out cyberpunk assistive medical devices and then they just stop serving them. And this is going to continue to be a problem, especially now that Elon is talking about putting chips in our brains, which scares the crap out of me and makes me not like him as much. Oh, come on. That way you could tweet from your brain, baby. And even if it didn't involve an invasive surgery with a device that might get abandoned in my head, <laughs> the very idea of tweeting from my brain scares the oh, crap out of Oh, there's a lot of me. extra room up there. Nobody come on. should want that. Oh, this, you, you would never miss a message again. So ultimately the, the gist of the article, because Dr. O is, if nothing else, a uh, armchair philosopher is the ethical question. Uh, who has rights to control medical technology implanted in your body? And by control, I will say add update medical technology implanted in your body. Uh, my answer to that question is you and only you. It's the only ethical answer, but that answer disagrees with IP laws and corporatism. Um, I will personally never implant anything in my body that's a computer. I probably won't because my, you know, it may not be ready in my lifetime. But if I ever do, I will have full root access and full control of the software, period, end of story. And a lot of corporations not willing to give that up. Coming soon, the new Pornhub V-chip to plant right in your brain. In your brain. 
right in into your, your brain. brain. <laughs> that's what, see, that's how you start speaking, though. If you get the chips in your brain, you're like, I want them in my brain. I want to get to the chips. I want them in very good, very good, very good. And in classic Dr. O'Form, he concludes by saying that the only possible solution is open source. We have to standardize the parts, make everything be open. Uh, he's, um, I'm not honestly sure how that. You, right. I did it. He seems now. to see what the, the not talking ability is, is spreading. Across. Uh, the not talking ability has been with me this whole show. <laughs> I'm, I'm off my game today. I'm not sure Corey Doctorow quite appreciates that you can't build standards when you don't actually have any clue what parts are needed. You you can't build standards on the cutting edge because you don't know what the requirements are. Right. And that's kind of important if you're trying to standardize something. You need the template, but, baby. Yeah. Uh, he also proposes that uh, all research in this area, we, we should stop all corporate research and that all research into this area must be publicly funded with the condition that everything be open and standardized. Okay, Kami. <laughs> well, that's what the left wants, man. Let's all bow I, you, down at the altar you, of tech. You, you had me right up until you thought that the idea was that you should get government involved and that would somehow fix anything. Yeah, because the government, name one governmental product that's better than the private sector version. I'll wait. Yeah, I don't think anybody's so, going to have that. Anyway, I definitely will have this this article in the show notes. I found it to be really fascinating, and it wasn't something that I'd thought about too much. Uh, the examples are chilling. It reinforced my idea that I don't necessarily want random technological crap being put in my body, especially when you know for sure it's going to take automatic updates from some on somebody else's update schedule. Ah. Uh, no, just no. It, it, something I I don't even I don't even want to run proprietary software on my computer, and let alone on my body. Just imagine the punishment the government could give to you if they can control whether you could get out of bed and walk that day. Uh, I I can imagine it, which is uh, anyway the 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 government punishing you. That's that's level two. Level one is the company goes out of business and now you have a piece of plastic that's broken in your eyeball. That's rotting something on that delightful note. If you enjoyed this show, donate, donate. So nobody will put anything into your eyeball. Nothing will happen. It it is important. You need to protect your eyeballs by donating to grumpy old Benz. Exactly. We highly recommend it. Keep the donation close to your eye and make sure it's gold or platinum. And then send it to the P.O. box or or all hell's going to break, break loose, break loose. Right. See, nobody could talk like I, I, my brain. It's not it, coffee. You, you need more caffeine. With that said, we will be back next week on Wednesday for another fun and exciting edition of the Grumpy Old Ben's podcast. Until then, I am Darren O'Neill coming to you live from a bunker deep in the heart of middle America, just outside of Chirac, where it's warm in January. Why? And from, from America's left coast. Where life flows from a coffee cup, but I'm still not getting it implanted in my eyeball. I'm Ryan Bimrus.
No, I'm not reading this.